0: that's it Welcome once again to our podcast on denominational doctrine. Today we will be discussing apostasy, or the falling away of the primitive church. Just a few reminders that the primitive church, the church built by Jesus himself, as Acts 10.28 says, purchased with his blood, that church was established on the day of Pentecost around 33 A.D., Jesus says in Luke 8.11 that the seed of the kingdom is the word of God. The kingdom was established in the first century. The church that Jesus established and the kingdom are the same thing. Daniel 2.44 gives us the time when the kingdom of heaven was going to be established, and that was in the first century from what we can discern from those prophecies. Not only the beginning of the church was prophesied, But the departure from the faith, from the truth, was also foretold. Just like the prophets warned Israel in the Old Testament against false prophets, we see that same warning given to Jesus' followers in the New Testament. We know Israel was apostate, was taken captive as punishment, and a remnant was restored. This same pattern continues for the people of God. Let's look at two prophecies concerning false prophets. First, in Matthew 7:15, I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. John gave a similar warning in 1 John 4, verse 1. He said, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So we receive these warnings telling us that false prophets would be coming and we need to test the spirits to make sure that they are from God. Well, how are we to do that? Well, let's look at a few more scriptures. In Acts chapter 20 verse 28 through 31, Paul the apostle gave a warning to the elders of the church. He said, "Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God." Which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves would come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up, even from your own number, and distort the truth, to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for three years, I never stop warning each of you with tears. Paul gives a similar warning in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9 through 12. He talks about the lawless one. He says, The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working, with every kind of miracle, both signs and wonders, serving the lie, and with every wicked deception among those who are perishing. They perish because they did not accept the love of the truth, and so be saved. For this reason God sends them a strong delusion, so that they will believe the lie, so that all will be condemned. Those who did not believe the truth but delighted in unrighteousness. Paul is talking about a lawless one, and so this lawless one is thought to be an eschatological person, a type of antichrist, as John teaches in 1 John chapter 4, 1-3. through It's not a specific person per se, but a class of people, really unbelievers who are heart of heart, who oppose the truth and exalt themselves. They exalt people, they exalt human ideas and thinking, above God's revelation. More insight about this process is given to us in the following verses. Let's take a look at 1 Timothy 4, 1-3. Paul writes to Timothy, Now the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons, through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared, They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. Paul is warning Timothy that people will be departing from the faith, and they're going to start paying attention to teachings of demons, and these are going to come through hypocrites, hypocrites whose consciences are seared, people who don't care for the truth, but who are going to make up rules as they go along. Paul gives us two examples here of some of those rules like forbidding marriage, demanding abstinence from foods, things that really are not written in the scripture. They are departing from the faith. Jude writes in verses 3 and 4, Dear friends, although I was eager to write you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. Jude is urging the Christians to fight for the faith. This is the good fight that Paul talks about, to contend for the faith. We need to fight for it because people are going to come in, as Jude says here, by stealth. Like Jesus had said, like wolves in sheep, clothing, and they are turning the grace of God into sensuality. so they're making it about pleasing the flesh, or about controlling the flesh. This is where Paul's words have meaning because Paul talked about the forbidding the forbidding of marriage, the abstinence from foods. In other words, they make it about trying to control your body as opposed to grace. This is the sensuality that Jude is referring to. It's all about either enhancing the senses or denying the senses in some way and not about the grace that God has given us and the freedom that we have in Christ to do good things. Paul will say in 2 Timothy 4, 3, and 4, for the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. This just shows us that when we stop believing in sound doctrine, when we stop focusing on the word of God, we're going to turn to any other teaching that may satisfy what we want to hear. We're going to try to hear or to adopt things that are pleasing to us, that give us permission to do what we want to do i.e. turning aside to myths instead of hearing the truth. As Paul says here, people will not tolerate sound doctrine. They will want to do what they want to do, follow their own desires. And this is how apostasy begins. This is the goal of the apostate, to do what they want to do. We're going to turn now to a little history. We're going to take a brief walk through how denominations began to proliferate in the ancient world. The Apostles' Creed was one of the earliest and most widely accepted Christian creeds apart from the Word of God. While its exact origins are not definitively known, it is believed to have developed in the early Christian communities, kind of like as a summary of essential Christian teachings and the Creed likely began to take shape in the 2nd century and was solidified by the 4th century as it is currently known. It's called the Apostles' Creed because it was thought to reflect the core teachings of the Apostles. Emperor Constantine's conversion to Christianity and the Edict of Milan in 313 AD granted religious tolerance to Christians. This marked a significant shift in the status of Christianity, allowing it to flourish and to become closely associated with the Roman state. The First Council of Nicaea in 325 AD and subsequent councils played a crucial role in shaping the theological direction of the church and furthering its departure from sound doctrine. The Nicene Creed was formulated during the First Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. This was convened by Emperor Constantine to address what's known as the Arian Controversy. You can look that up. The council aimed to clarify the nature of Jesus Christ in relation to God the Father and combat the teachings of Arius, who denied Christ's full divinity. The Nicene Creed established the Orthodox view of the Trinity and the deity of Christ. It was later revised at the First Council of Constantinople in 381 A.D. to further clarify the Holy Spirit's divinity and role. The Second Council of Nicaea, also known as the Seventh Ecumenical Council, took place in 787 A.D., This council focused on addressing the use of religious images, particularly icons, within the Christian Church, which was quickly turning into what is now known as the Catholic Church. In this council, they approved of the veneration of icons, and they defined what that was. They rejected those who viewed icons as idolatry, and they promoted the orthodox use of icons. The idea of the Pope, of this universal bishop, came over time. It began to be recognized as having a special role within the Church, particularly due to the historical importance of Rome as the capital of the Roman Empire. This recognition of the Pope's authority contributed to the centralization of power in the Catholic Church. Around the same time, there was a rise of the clergy clergy became more important in how the common populace related to the Pope and related to their own religious faith. Infant baptism, the sprinkling of water instead of immersion in water, instrumental music, the veneration of saints, i.e. the veneration of people, all these ideas started to slowly rise as the Catholic Church became more and more powerful. Then there was a group of people that objected to this abuse of power by the Catholic Church. There were many things going on that the people felt was not right. For example, the selling of indulgences. Indulgences were certificates that people could purchase to supposedly reduce the time their souls spent in purgatory when they died or when a loved one died. Many people were dissatisfied with what they saw as corruption within the church, including the extravagant lifestyles of some clergy, the sale of church offices, and the overall perceived moral decline among the church leadership. And this led to what's known as the Protestant Reformation. Who kicked it off? Martin Luther kicked it off in 1517, he famously posted his 95 Thesis on the Door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. These were a list of points for a theological debate, primarily criticizing the sale of indulgences. Luther's actions ignited a broader debate and attracted attention throughout all of Europe. He challenged the Pope's authority and the Catholic Church's hierarchy. He argued that salvation was achieved through faith alone, sola fide, as it is known not through a combination of faith and good works as traditionally taught by the Catholic Church. The Council of Trent was one of the most important and influential ecumenical councils in the history of the Catholic Church. It took place in multiple sessions between 1545 and 1563 AD. The council was convened to address theological challenges of the Protestant Reformation and to provide clarity on various doctrinal and disciplinary matters. In this council many things were discussed and some of the conclusions were that tradition and Scripture are both equal in authority. This set the precedent for further apostasy by the Catholic Church and the denominations that followed it. They raised tradition to the same level as Scripture in authority. They also decided that good works are needed for salvation, and this is how the seven sacraments that the church practices came to be known. They say that the sacraments were imparted by God for the reception of God's grace to the people. The doctrine of transubstantiation also took form in this council, as well as mass being the central act of worship. Original sin came out of this and the need for infant baptism and also the affirmation of the authority of the Pope. So this council really cemented the personality of the Catholic Church. John Calvin was a prominent theologian and reformer whose ideas and contributions profoundly impacted Christianity, particularly within the Reformed tradition. The acronym TULIP summarizes his ideas and impact on today's denominational thought, and we're going to examine this later on in our class. Following John Calvin was John Knox, who was influenced by Calvin. He played a pivotal role in shaping the Presbyterian church. After spending some time in Geneva under the influence of John Calvin, John Knox returned to Scotland and led efforts to reform the Scottish church along Presbyterian lines. The Protestant Reformation and these cast of characters, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, led to the establishment of various Protestant denominations, each with its own distinct theological perspective and practice. It also resulted in significant religious and political conflicts, including wars and shifts in political alliances, as countries and regions decided whether to align with the Catholic Church or the newly emerging Protestant movements. The Reformation had profound and lasting effects on European society, politics, culture, and religious beliefs, shaping the course of history for centuries to come. And here we're going to list a few of these groups that were very, very influential. Here are some from the 16th and 17th century following Martin Luther, John Knox, and John Calvin. We have the Anabaptists. The Anabaptist movement originated in the 16th century as a radical reformation movement within Protestantism. Anabaptists emphasized adult baptism, separation of church and state, and a commitment to nonviolence. The Mennonites are descendants of the Anabaptists, and they have a long history dating back to the 16th century as well. They emphasize simplicity of living, community, nonresistance, and service to others. There are various Mennonite denominations and groups around the world, each with its unique tradition. We have the Religious Society of Friends, commonly known as Quakers, which originated in the mid-17th century during the English Civil War era. The movement was founded by George Fox, a preacher from England, who began preaching his distinctive views around the 1640s. The term Quaker was initially used as a derogatory label for the movement, but the friends themselves embraced it. Baptists. The Baptist movement can be traced back to the 17th century as well, but it gained significant momentum and formalized as a distinct tradition in the 19th century. The key distinguishing feature of Baptists is their belief in adult baptism by immersion and the autonomy of local churches. While there were earlier groups with similar beliefs, the Baptist movement as we know it today began to take shape in the 17th century. And gained further structure and organization in the 18th and 19th centuries. We're gonna study the Baptists and what they're all about later on. We got the Amish. The Amish are a subgroup within the Anabaptist tradition, known for their strong commitment to simplicity, traditional dress, and separation from modern technologies and conveniences. They emerge in the 17th century as a response to perceived compromises within the Mennonite community. From the 18th century to the present, we have the following groups that also came out of this Protestant Reformation. We have the Methodists, founded by John Wesley, an Anglican clergyman, along with his brother Charles Wesley. They were part of the Holy Club of the Anglican Church, and they emphasized salvation through faith and holiness. They also stressed a personal relationship with Jesus, and so they came out of the Church of England. During this time, a great awakening occurred in the American colonies and Great Britain. This movement was characterized by a fervent call for personal conviction and a deepening of religious experience. The Great Awakening ignited a sense of religious enthusiasm and emotional intensity among believers, leading to large gatherings and outdoor revival meetings. This is where we get the famous tent revivals from. It profoundly impacted American culture, contributing to the development of a distinct American religious identity and fostering ideals of personal freedom and individual responsibility. A few more groups arose from this Great Awakening, but we don't have the time or the scope to address all of them. Uh, You can research that on your own. Let's talk about a very important movement that occurred in the 19th century called the Restoration Movement or the Stone Campbell Movement. The Restoration Movement of the Churches of Christ was a 19th century religious movement in the United States that sought to restore Christianity to its original form as described in the New Testament. It emerged as a response to perceived division, doctrinal disputes, and institutionalization within various Christian denominations. The movement emphasized a return to the simplicity and the purity of early Christianity with a focus on the Bible as the sole authority for faith and practice. Key leaders of the Restoration Movement included Thomas Campbell, Alexander Campbell, Barton Stone, and Walter Scott. They advocated for unity among Christians by discarding denominational labels and adopting a more inclusive term, like Christians or Disciples. The movement gained momentum in the early 19th century and led to the formation of various independent Christian groups, including the Churches of Christ, the Christian Church, otherwise known as the Disciples of Christ and the independent Christian churches. The Restoration Movement emphasized several core principles, often summarized using slogans such as Where the Scriptures speak, we speak. Where the Scriptures are silent, we are silent. And, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love. This approach aimed to reject human-made creeds and traditions in favor of a direct interpretation of the Bible. While the Restoration Movement succeeded in creating a sense of unity and focusing on the Bible's teachings, it also led to the development of different branches and interpretations within the movement itself. Over time, some of the groups that emerged began to develop their own distinctive practices and beliefs. Despite these variations, the Restoration Movement has left a lasting impact on American Christianity, influencing the development of non-denominational churches and a focus on the authority of the Bible in religious practice. Some of these groups that branched out are the Churches of Christ, the Christian Church or the Disciples of Christ, the Independent Christian Churches or the Churches of Christ, Evangelical Christian Church of Canada, and of particular distinction, a uh, Crossroads Movement, also known as the Boston Movement, started by Kip McKean in the 80s. This led to the formation of the International Church of Christ, which then converted to the sold-out discipling movement and the remnant movement. Another important movement in the earliest 20th century was the charismatic movement. We call this the Pentecostal movement, and it emerged in the early 20th century as a result of the Azusa Street Revival which took place from 1906 to 1909 in Los Angeles, California. This revival, led by William J. Seymour, emphasized the restoration of spiritual gifts described in the New Testament, particularly the experience of speaking in tongues. The movement was characterized by its emphasis on the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the belief in the ongoing manifestation of spiritual gifts, including healing, prophecy, and speaking in tongues. The Pentecostal movement spread across various denominational lines, giving rise to numerous Pentecostal denominations and independent churches. This movement significantly impacted global Christianity and led to the formation of various Pentecostal and charismatic groups. Also, there were some cults that arose during this time, but we're not going to talk about them now. We're going to get into the cults later, even what is the definition of a cult as well. Because it won't be a Baptist that's sitting on the throne. A Presbyterian or a Methodist that's calling us home. And it won't be a charismatic that plays that trumpet tune. So let's all just live for Jesus because he's coming.